Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kalia will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kalia are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn podcast, the podcast where we, Jennifer and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today we will be discussing Shoeless Joe, the 1982 magical realist novel by Canadian author W.P. Kinsella, which became the 1989 Kevin Costner film Field of Dreams. But first, we're going to tell you all the ways that you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have a webpage where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show. You can also connect to us, visit our Facebook page and our Twitter, both searchable by typing Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. And we will have polls about our episodes in the Facebook and Twitter land, so check them out and make your opinions known. And of course, you can email us directly at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. We also now have a Goodreads account under Pages of Popcorn Podcast, where you can discuss books with us, movies with us. We'll have polls open. We'll have fun summer reads and all sorts of stuff. Yep, including some challenges that are going on right now. So check them out and uh, participate. And we want to thank all of our patrons for their continued support and remind you that our Patreon page is www.patreon.com slash Pages and Popcorn Podcast. And you can sign up to donate monthly to us for the sake of this podcast a dollar a month five dollars a month whatever you can spare it helps us keep this process going for our patrons you get the episodes early which is very exciting and you will also have access to some cool supplemental episodes i think we're going to have two supplemental episodes in june so check it out patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast and join us there and we really want to encourage you to rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to us especially iTunes, because that will help other people find us. Now, on with the show.
Do you want to say how we came to it before I did my recap? Or um, I saw the movie when it came out, and it was it was like the big movie of its day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it won awards. It had a lot of press, and that's what I remember. It, it was it was that film that came out that year, and that was the big film of the year. I vaguely remember as a child hearing about it. I think it was on at somebody's house when we were there, and I saw like a couple seconds of something, and but it didn't really resonate because it was a baseball movie, and nobody in my family is into sports, so baseball is not really a thing. Um, yeah, and then you put it on the list, and I was like, oh, okay. So, funny story, when I looked it up on Amazon to buy the book and read the book that Field of Dreams was based on, I accidentally bought the wrong book. Originally, I bought a book called If You Build It by Dwyer Brown. It is a book about fathers, fate, and field of dreams, which, of course, is why I bought it, because I thought, oh, this must be the book that the movie's based on. No, the movie is based on the book Shoeless Joe. This book is a memoir by the actor who played the father of Kevin Costner's character in the last five minutes of the movie. And I have more to say about the memoir um, at the end, but I realized my mistake, got Shoeless Joe, read it quickly, even though it was very long. And here is my recap. Okay. Ray Kinsella lives and farms in Iowa, where he grows corn with his wife, Annie, and their five-year-old daughter, Karen. He is a reluctant farmer, but has chosen this life because he has fallen in love with Iowa. He came to Iowa for school, fell in love with Annie, and stayed. The farm they rented and then bought is from an old retired ball player, the last surviving Cubs player named Eddie. Kinsella is obsessed with the beauty and history of American baseball, specifically the plight of his hero, Shoeless Joe Jackson, and the Black Sox scandal of the 1919 World Series. His father had been similarly obsessed and had been a catcher in the minor leagues. One night, Ray hears a voice telling him to build it in the midst of his corn crop. If you build it, he will come. And he just knows that it's referencing the left field, and the hymn is Shoeless Joe. And so he obeys. He builds a left field for Joe's ghost to play on. This takes a lot of time and a lot of grass obsessions, and his wife Annie is super supportive of his sudden obsession with the perfect grass and measurements and over such and over and again. In fact, the first thing she says is, if it makes you happy, you should do it, and then they make out. Okay. Anyways, I got more to say about Annie, too. La la la. He even has to buy a very special tractor and other such things for this left field. Eventually, the left field is done, and he waits and waits for something to happen. Finally, Annie sees someone out on the lawn, as she calls it. <laughs> lawn. Annie is not a baseball enthusiast. She's a spectator. Ray is very clear on this point. Anyways, Ray was right. It's a ghost of Shoeless Joe, and he plays baseball on this left field. Ray watches, and the magic realism truly kicks in. He can see the whole game, all the players, and the stands, and the stuff, even though Joe is really the only one there, and really the only one with full form and function. It's not very well fleshed out in the book. It's very vague and magic-y. The two talk to during the game and bond for a bit. Little Karen comes out and joins her father. She too can see the magic baseball game. Part two. Joe's ghost convinces Ray to build the rest of the field so more ghost players can come and play. And so he does. This eats up more of his cropland and puts the family in more financial trouble. Also, Joe makes a promise to check out the ghost of Ray's dad as a catcher at some point down the line. Maybe he too can play ghost baseball. A whole bunch of other ghosts do show up to play, and we find out that everyone can see the magic. Karen can, Ray can, Annie can, but Annie's family can't, including her boorish brother Mark, who turns out is trying to buy the farm out from under them. Later, Ray hears another message. Ease his pain. And he just know that it means... 
J.D. Salinger, the very real person, the very real author of Catcher in the Rye. He's a writer, but according to an interview that he did at one point years ago, he loved baseball and wished he could have played. So naturally, Ray buys a gun and heads out on a road trip to Kate kidnapped J.D. frickin' Salinger, take him to a baseball game, and ease his pain. He feels he might have a connection with Salinger, because Salinger wrote a character with Ray's name in a story, and a character with Ray's twin brother's name in another. Oh yeah, by the way, we learn at this point on page 80 of the book, Ray has a twin brother. Okay, whatever. Off he goes, seeing the occasional baseball game along the way. There's also a random side quest. In a diner, Ray is witness to an attempted holdup, but the criminal mastermind doesn't actually have a gun, and it devolves into a domestic squabble about impotence. Okay, whatever. Eventually, Ray gets to Salinger's house and accosts him in the driveway. He pretends to have a gun and tells J.D. that he is there to take him to a baseball game. Eventually, Salinger agrees to go, and once in the car, Ray gives up on the false gun pretense. They talk on the drive, and Salinger says the article is fake. He wasn't in love with baseball. But they go to the game anyways, and Salinger is grumpy, and Ray is overly emotional about baseball. Actually, Ray is overly emotional about baseball all of the book, but he's really overly emotional about baseball at this particular time. Ray also gives Salinger crap for not writing anymore, and he's really annoying about the whole thing. He tells Salinger the magic baseball failed, and Salinger paints a scary picture of what could happen if lots of people could see it and it became overcrowded and was turned into a business, and oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So then Ray gets another message, this time from the scoreboard. It's the stats of a player named Moonlight Graham who only played one inning in the majors. In his excitement, Ray walks into a pole and gets stitches in his forehead, and now he can't drive, but that's okay, Salinger can, so they drive back to Salinger's house. Then Salinger admits that he got the same message, all about this Graham player, and actually heard a magic message in his ears too, to fulfill the dream. Ray didn't hear this. Ray's a little jealous. Whatever, now Salinger is committed, so they're off to go to this Moonlight Graham. Part three, they go to a town called Shishulin, Minnesota, to find the Graham. Turns out that he's dead. He was a doctor for the town, one of those overly perfect, kind, and wonderful country doctors. Doc Graham was Archie Graham, Moonlight Graham, a baseball nickname, but he didn't really talk about his one inning of baseball to the town. Again, he's dead. He's been dead for years. Ray goes for a walk, accidentally slips back in time, and bumps into the doc's ghost. He gets a whole story about how come the only one inning was only the one inning, and the fact that the doc loved being a doctor way more than baseball. Although they do have, although he says he does have a wish to stare down a pitcher while at bat. But then the magic fades. Ray's back in the present day. He and Salinger agree it's time to head back to Iowa and see if Salinger can see the magic baseball field. On their way out of town, they pick up a young hitchhiker. It's the young Archie Graham. Part four. The farmer, the husband, and the kid who hasn't yet had his inning of Major League Baseball all travel down the road. They stop and play some baseball along the way, and then some male bonding ensues. Baseball is like church, you know. On the way, they also stop for Eddie, the oldest living Chicago Cup, the old man that Ray bought the farm from. This man is also obsessed with baseball. He loves to tell anyone and everyone who will listen how he played in the majors and how he's going to be buried in a Chicago Cubs uniform. Ray hasn't shown him the magic field yet, but now is the time. Eddie's acting a little funny, but he agrees to go to the farm. Remember, Ray is behind on payments for the farm has been spending money on frivolous things like this mini tractor and it wouldn't actually help with farming, and so Ray chalks up Eddie's weirdiness to that. At the farm, there's a bit of a confused welcome home, because Ray's twin brother has also shown up, and it's awkward because he looks just like Ray, and because he's been out of Ray's life for like 20 years. He travels around with a circus and a sideshow thing with his girlfriend named Gypsy. They'll get to the farm eventually. Whatever. Anyways, he's back in town, sort of, and there's some brother catching up, and then the farmhouse is super crowded, there's all these people there. Of course, Annie, the wife, is super supportive of everything, and has no really opinion about all of these random people who are now living in her house and eating all her food. It's all fine. It's like a bad sitcom. Whatever. The next day, Boris' brother Mark tries to call him by the farm again, and again Ray says no. But 
Oh no, Eddie has sold the note, so either Ray gets the money together in just a matter of days, or weeks, or some time, or Mark and the business partners will own the land and will destroy the magic baseball field. Eddie feels bad for Ray, but Mark had blackmailed him, and so what's done is done. So then there's a couple of days of waiting, but then finally the magic field shows up, and it's filled with ghosts playing a game. Of course, Salinger can see it, so can Eddie, and little Archie Graham is welcomed by the players and fully becomes his ghost self. Also, Ray's dad is now a ghost cat and Richard can't see the game and he gets really angry about it and Salinger offers to help Ray financially and Ray says no because plot. Boris' brother Mark shows back up during a magic baseball game and gets really belligerent about the money situation and he also cannot see the game. When Ray still won't sell, he tells him that he tells everyone Eddie's big secret. Eddie's a fraud. He never actually played for the Cubs. But no one really cares. Ray already pretty much knew. Eddie kind of takes it hard, and, well, time passes. They just hang out. They watch game after game. They wind down the clock until the bank is going to come and take the farm. Ray still can't bring himself to talk to the catcher that's his dad. Richard is starting to see little bits of the game. At one point, a younger version of Eddie shows up as a ghost in the game, and older Eddie gives a baseball sermon that's very religious. And that night, older Eddie dies in his sleep. And so they bury him in the field. Richard and Gypsy move in with their sideshow trailer. Gypsy can also see the game. And now for the climax, I guess? During another magical game, Mark shows up being all ranty about the bank. Of course, he can't see the game, still. This time, things get physical, and Ray gets out his gun and pops off a shot as a warning, and in the confusion and drama, Karen falls off the bleachers. Remember Karen, the five-year-old? Yeah, okay, so now she's on the ground. There is a panic. No one knows what to do. Karen's lying in the dirt. She, Karen's not breathing. And Archie Graham comes in from the field, magically turning into Doc Graham, his old version of himself, and he saves her. Of course, he can't go back to being Archie, but that's okay. His ghost fades away. His ghost is satisfied. Okay, more games are played. Again, just winding out the time. Salinger gives a speech about how other people will find the farm. It'll be like a magical fraternity of people who can just sense that it's there. And it'll all be okay. And they'll be fine with being charged to wander around this field. And it'll be wonderful. And this will be how they'll make enough money to stay afloat. And uh, and then... That actually starts to happen. People start to kind of show up. And Ray and Richard go finally chat with the catcher, their father. And J.D. Salinger gets invited to go through the door in the field where the ghost ball players disappear to after the games. And so he does. And Ray is jealous. But then he realizes that he has a wife and a kid and his life isn't over. And then that's the end. So how do you feel about that, Kaylee? I really did not like this book. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I, I, I kind of... Wonder if that will come across. Yeah, I don't I know. Mean, you're really subtle. I'm very about subtle. It. I am. <laughs> oh my gosh. My, I feel bad for my husband because he kept walking by me while I was reading this book, and I would be like, <laughs> so silently laughing through most of that. Okay. The movie re- recap is shorter. Okay, I promise. Here we go. Movie recap. Ray Kinsella, a novice corn farmer, lives with his wife Annie and their daughter Karen on an Iowa farm. In the opening narration, he discusses his troubled relationship with his father, John, a devoted baseball fan who never made it to the majors. While walking through his cornfield one evening, he hears a voice whispering, if you build it, he will come. Ray also sees a vision of a baseball diamond in his field. Annie is skeptical, but agrees to him plowing under part of their corn in order to build a baseball field, a whole field, despite the financial repercussions it will cause. As he builds, he tells Karen about the 1919 Black Sox scandal, and months pass, and one night, a uniformed man appears in the field which Ray recognizes as Shoeless Joe Jackson, the deceased baseball player his father had idolized. Thrilled to play baseball again, Joe asks if others can play there and later returns with the seven additional players who were banned in the 1919 scandal. Ray's brother-in-law, Mark, unable to see the players, warns that Ray will go bankrupt unless the corn is replanted. Meanwhile, Ray hears the voice again. This 
this time urging him to ease his pain. Ray and Annie attend a PTA meeting where some local citizens want to ban books by radical author Terrence Mann from the school, considering his work obscene. He was an activist writer in the 60s. Ray believes that the voice he heard was referring to Mann, who he's named because he's named a character, John Kinsella, in one of his books, and that's Ray's father's name. Meanwhile, Annie is freaking amazing. She stands up and takes down this clothed-minded group of zealots. And Ray doesn't really pay attention, but yay for Annie. Ray has come across a magazine interview about man's childhood dream of playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. So Ray and Annie both have an identical dream about Ray and man attending a baseball game together at Fenway Park. Now Annie's invested in it's okay. Ray seeks out man in Boston. He proceeds a reluctant man to attend a game with him at Fenway Park. This scene is amazing. Yes, he attempts the gun in the coat routine, and James Earl Jones pretty much says, yeah, okay, and then picks up a crowbar. It's hilarious. Anyway, through verbal persuasion, Ray convinces man. While at the game, they hear the voice urging him to go the distance. At the same time, the scoreboard shows statistics for a player named Archibald Moonlight Graham, Archie Moonlight Graham, who played only one game in the New York Giants in 1922, but never had a turn at bat. After the game, Mann admits that he also heard the voice and saw the name on the scoreboard. Now they're both invested. Ray and Mann travel to Chishlam, Minnesota, and learn that Graham died 16 years earlier. He was a doctor. During a late night walk around, Ray finds himself back in 1972, and he encounters the now alive and elderly Graham, who states that he moved on from baseball for a satisfying medical career. He declines Ray's invitation to fulfill his dream. However, during the drive back home, Ray picks up a young hitchhiker who introduces himself as Archie Graham and says he wants to be a baseball player. While Archie's asleep in the back seat, Ray tells Mann that his father had dreamed of being a baseball star. Ray says he stopped playing catch with his father at age 14 after reading Mann's book about the White Sox scandal. So this caused a huge rift with him and his father. And at 17, Ray and his father had a horrible fight and Ray claimed that Shoeless Joe and all the other guys were guilty while his father believed all of them were innocent. Ray regrets never reconciling with his father before his father's death. Arriving back at Ray's farm, they find out that more players have arrived to field two teams and a magical baseball game is being played, and Archie finally gets his turn at bat. And of course, man can see the game. The next morning, Mark returns and demands that Ray sell the farm. Karen insists there's no need to sell it because people will come and play to watch the ball games. Man agrees, saying that people will come in order to relieve their childhood innocence. When Ray again refuses to sell, a scuffle breaks out between him and Mark, during which Karen is accidentally knocked off the bleachers and is unresponsive. The young Archie Graham runs from the field, knowing that he will be unable to return once leaving, and he again, he becomes old Dr. Graham and saves Karen from choking. He reassures Ray that he has no regrets about leaving the field. After being commended by the other players, Graham disappears into the corn. Suddenly, Mark can see the players and urges Ray to keep the farm. After the game, Shoeless Joe invites Man to enter the corn. He accepts and disappears into it. Ray is a little bitter about not being invited himself, but Shoeless Joe rebukes him. If he really wants a reward for having sacrificed so much, then he should stay on the field. Shoeless Joe then glances towards a player at home plate, saying, If you build it, he will come. Dun, dun, dun. The player removes his catcher's mask to reveal that he is Ray's father as a young man. Shocked, Ray realized that ease his pain referred to his father, or maybe to himself, and believes that Shoeless Joe was the voice all along, but Joe says ease his pain was about Ray. Oh, yes. Joe disappears into the corn. Ray introduces John to his family, not calling him dad, and then John and Ray play catch in the field, and it's super, super cute, and then as the camera zooms out you see that the road is full of cars tons and tons of people are going to come and pay money to watch baseball in a magical field of dreams and it's great (laughs) so you can actually go to that farm and there's the baseball and yeah you can enjoy playing baseball 
at that farm. Yes, you can. Yep. So it's a nice little tourist attraction. So the guy who had it, he didn't charge money. You could go like enjoy and he made money off the souvenir shop. He sold it for quite a lot of money though. Well, what I think is really funny about this is that it is this romanticized version of like, it's a baseball field and you can just come and blah, blah, blah. But when they built it for the movie, it actually straddles property lines. So it's on two people's farms and these two people have fought and there's been lawsuits about it. And like, which souvenir stand you goes to, you know, depending on the other one, there's like a lot of drama and litigation. So it's like this beautiful romantic baseball, but also like the very real American thing of like, litigation and property lines. Well, <laughs> that's also kind of ironic looking at Salinger and Terrence Mann who were against these commercializations of their work. Uh-huh. And so you're commercializing baseball, which is supposed to be the heart of America, and yet you're kind of losing your message there, buddy. Yeah. And, and Okay, so speaking of just I want to touch on it. Messages like there's this thing about corporations are bad in the book. I didn't really get into the recap, but Mark wants to buy the land because he's doing it's like corporate farming. They buy all of this land. So corporations are bad in the book. But also like the, the, the players just want to play. They don't want to be part of a big business. It's not the business of baseball that they love. It's like the soul of baseball. And there's just, there's just the simple act of playing is good enough, except that. Literally, in order to make money to keep going, they, they have to charge. Like, the whole thing. So it's a little ironic. And there's also the Black Sox scandal. Yes! Which was about cheating, right? Like, yeah. whether or not they cheated or not, but they were found... I mean, yeah, Okay, so... So Shoeless Joe was the only one who... And again, this is all contextual. Like, is it real? Is it not? But he was the one who historically has been deemed to be innocent. He couldn't read. He was just kind of swept up in this scandal. So if you're going to have anyone who is really innocent, it would be him. But the rest of the players from that scandal are there. And they they were part of the scandal. Yeah. But they get their redemption, maybe? I don't know what they get. They get to play. And I guess that's like... it's it's It acts like just getting to play is is the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. You know, like this was the pinnacle of their lives, the, the game and playing the game with other awesome people. And what I like is that um, Archie Graham, Doc Graham was like, yeah, baseball was cool, but like, I loved my wife, Alicia. And if I hadn't been able to be a doctor, that would have been a true tragedy. Yeah. And like, so he's like saying, and he says that in both the book and the movie, but I think it really lands in the movie. It doesn't land as much in the book. And in the movie, like Ray really gets it. He's like, yeah, and I have this kick-ass wife. Well, I mean, in the book, his wife is not kick-ass. So maybe that was the difference. But in the movie, his wife is awesome. And his daughter's super cute. And he's like, okay, with like, oh, that, this is my life. And, and I get to have these connections and, and, I felt like the movie was much more about family and faith, and the book was like like basically masturbatory baseball porn, and I don't even know, man. <sighs> so much waxing poetic about baseball. And because I'm not a baseball fan, I'm not really into sports. But- yeah, I have that same situation, and I was thinking about that when I was driving over, how much you hate horror films. And so whenever we have to discuss a horror film, it's like, okay, it's going to be a semi-one-sided discussion because you're just not into it. Uh huh. And so with the baseball thing, you're not into baseball, I'm not into baseball. So we may not have the best perspective when talking about baseball. We are kind of outsiders on this one. Right. But I think it's important to note that okay, so I read a bunch of reviews, and there are definitely baseball fans who think that this book was amazeballs. 
But they don't just say this book was written really well and they really like the story and the book's about something that they love. They All the reviews I ever read that were gushing about it had had the second component about how baseball is like true America and it's all about conservative idealism and that we've gone away from what's pure and good as America and like that's what the book is about. So it's an issue of nostalgia, which is a trap. It yeah. is an absolute trap. You know, the 50s... Or not a great time for a lot of people. You know, it was a great. It wasn't a great time if you were a person of color. It wasn't a great time if you were a woman. It was a great time if you were a white middle class or upper male. Mm-hmm. And that's the only people who had it really well. So, um, just as a, a, a quick thing, the director of the film, one of his biggest regrets, and this is, he said, this is the one thing he would have changed if he could, is he wished he had black players on the field and not just all white players. Mm-hmm. So uh, a league of their own. They have a great little nod to this where there's a woman who catches a ball that uh, just kind of flew off the field and she's black and she kind of looks at them and they not acknowledge, yeah, you should be playing this. You are a great player just from this one thing. But you can't because you're black. Right. And so I, A League of Their Own is I thought about that when I watched Field the Trains. Yeah. Because I was like, okay, here's another baseball movie. Now, I, Roger Ebert had this thing about, like, if you don't like sports movies because they're sports movies, then you're missing the point. Like, a, a, a baseball movie is not a movie. It's, it's like sci-fi. You can't say you just dislike sci-fi because you don't like robots. Like, that's that does, that's not what it's about. No, it's more about the thought experiment. Right. Well, and so baseball, sports movies, the sport is the metaphor. It's like the context, but what you're actually watching for is the, the character development and the people's connections and that, you know, interpersonal drama. So Field of Dreams is a baseball movie, but it's not... I mean, baseball's there, but I loved the movie, and I don't like baseball. Like, so I feel yeah. like you can love this baseball movie. I, it's okay to, to 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 kind of separate those two. So I think you. But to get back, kind of in my circle here, I feel like in order to love this book, you probably need to love baseball. But to love the movie, I think you just need to love people. <laughs> yeah, it's more about sort of the, that idea of innocence. And as I said, nostalgia is a trap. Real quick, because I know we're going to reference it a few times. For those of you who don't know what magical realism is... Um, I'm kind of a stickler for magical realism, and this doesn't quite fit the definition. Okay, well, I totally thought it did. So okay. my definition is the literary artistic genre in which realistic narrative and naturalistic techniques are combined with surreal elements of dream and fantasy. Particularly from a Latin American authors, it's often read as a genre of political subversion. Just as the fantastic and magical elements are presented as normal, the standard structure of reality is put into question. Essentially, magical realism is a chance for authors to show an alternative to an accepted reality, which can be an incredibly powerful tool for political regimes. But it doesn't have to be political. It can just but like that part of it... Um, Alternative to accepted reality, the standard structure of reality is put into question. So, like, what is real and what isn't is kind of yeah. fuzzy, and there's some supernatural, but it's not well really okay, about so that. So, Hundred Years of Solitude is one of the great, you know, magical realism novels, um, and Toni Morrison kind of fits into this. Juan uh, Rolfo, he's definitely a magical realism. To me, magical realism doesn't call attention to the magical elements. They're just there as part of the world. Whereas this does call into attention, oh, can you see it? Can you not? Right. You know, it, it's a little okay. too self-aware for it to be magical realism to me, but then I'm a hardcore definition magical realism person. Okay. So, so it kind of 
I, I accept it as magical realism. I think it's okay to have the, the attention drawn to it and keep it. But either way, yeah, it, is, that, it, it is that, like that blending, blending. No. No, but it's, you know, where do you have magic in books where, oh, we do magic now. I mean, there's urban fantasy, there's paranormal romance, there's... But that's not magical realism. No, it isn't. But that's kind of the difference is magical realism doesn't call attention to itself. If you have paranormal romance, urban fantasy, that kind of thing... That is calling attention that, oh, hey, we have vampires. I think it comes to partly about explanation. Like, nobody needed an explanation in either the book or the movie. Like, they didn't need to understand it. And nobody was like, I don't understand. How does this work? Let's really get into it. Let's test the theories. Let's, let's you know, da, da. no, they just kind of accepted it without question. And so, like, that to me is what kind of keeps it in magical realism mm. as opposed to fantasy where there's rules, right? And there's, like... You know, in Harry Potter, you have to learn the spell. You have to move your wand in but a specific way. But there are rules. Way. You know, when Graham leaves the baseball field, he isn't coming back. Yes, there are rules. I'm not saying that there's not. I'm saying that, that they don't make as big of a deal. It's not the point of the magic isn't about the rules. People aren't trying to utilize the magic to do other things. They simply accept that it's a gift. It's what it is. And he certainly but does. She questions <laughs> his sanity. She and does in the movie, but in the book, she's she, just like, oh, whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do. And then there's graphic talk about, I mean, it's not super graphic, but it is, we don't get a lot of details about a lot of things. So it's very vague in the book. I mean, basically, we got a lot of details about baseball. And then we get a lot of details about having sex with Annie. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and how amazing she is for for just being so supportive i want to say we can we can transition to this annie is a great character in the movie yes i love that they added this pta scene that was talking about censorship and it really puts you in the time and the place this movie was you know where it was and it's a great great introduction to man too it's a very good introduction it's it's exposition done right Yes, and because it also shows character development. He's um, Ray's sitting at the PTA meeting, and he's there to kind of be supportive of his wife, but he's not really clued in. He's in his own little head. Annie's there to, like, fight the system, because in the movie, they make a big deal about the fact that Annie and Ray had been hippies, right? They, they went to Berkeley They went the to 60s. Berkeley in the 60s. They have the VW bus thing, you know? Like, yeah. they, that's them, and they read Terrence Mann, who's this black activist writer, uh, and he changed their life, whereas in the book, it's it's earlier it's set earlier so everything kind of goes back a little bit and jd salinger is the author in question but there's definitely no hippie and i thought that was an interesting choice to kind of add that in and to make annie more of a a a fully fleshed out yeah i liked her character so much better in the movie definitely so yeah yeah. yeah, book annie her main motivation is i want to be his wife yes and that's the beginning and end of annie yeah yeah she's there to be a mom and a wife and super supportive and yeah, right. Well, and really from a from a narrative point, from like a story point, her character is there to flush out that Ray has the wife and family thing. That's all she's there for. And to make sure that we don't think he's queer. So, <laughs> so when people tell me, well, the book's always better than the movie, I go, no, sometimes movie makers make really intelligent decisions. And Annie was one of them. I like that they made her a much better character. Mm-hmm. And, and she got to be part of the magic. She yeah. had the prophetic dream. So, you know, she had her, her like, I don't know, man, this is, seems weird until she got involved in it. So, you know, that... Yeah, she was feisty. I'm a super skeptic, right? But if God Almighty showed up at my dinner table tomorrow, I would have to be questioning my skepticism. So, like, I'm okay with, like, being open to things once you get new information, yeah. right? And that was Annie in the in the movie, definitely. And she was, she was just pretty so awesome. So another really good choice was getting rid of the twin. 
Yeah, that... Yeah. Because <laughs> the only reason it felt like he was even in the book was just because Salinger had two characters named Kinsella. Richard yeah. and Ray, and that was the only reason for him to be there. If you know, Gypsy's real name was also Anne. Yeah, Annie. Yeah, I know. That. I caught that too. And so, like, the, you could have done something. There was there was this little moment at one point where the Ray character was talking to his mom, and he references something that happened when he was a child, and she goes, "Oh no, that was your brother." And there were like two points in there where he was like, "Was it me or was it him? Which one of us left home? Which one of us did this?" And I was like, "Okay, like if we get into magical realism." Maybe, maybe you are your other brother. Like, yeah, maybe you're twins. the one who's been gone, and he's the one who has stayed. Or, like, something like, you know, if you're going to lean into this magical realism, like, we could make some magical shit happen with yeah. twins, but we didn't actually And twins are that. really loaded. Yes! The fact that we did not know that he had a twin until literally almost page 80, then halfway through part two, we got, like, his father and his mother's, like, entire genealogical background. So-and-so moved from here, and then they lived here, and then they had these kids, and then this kid did this, and da-da. But no mention of the twin. I felt like, oh, hello, twin afterthought. Like, seriously, you got shoehorned into this book. So I am so glad. So glad that the twin got left out. I was a little sad that Eddie got left out. Kids, scissors. Eddie, like... Where did he come from? Like, all of a sudden, he was just in the book living at their house, it seemed he like. He was a major... Well, okay, he was... like So, this is one of the th- problems I had with the book, is the book did not have a straight-up narrative structure, right? Yeah. So, which is fine if you do it well. But what happens is, there's, like, there's no flashback where we're now going to take a break and we're going to have a flashback. The flashback is all interwoven with the present constantly. So, Ray cannot tell a simple story. Ray doesn't just say, I went to the store, I bought bread, I saw a dog on my way home. Ray says, I went to the store, reminded me of the store that I lived at as a child, blah, blah, blah. You have 20 minutes about his childhood. And then I bought bread. And then he's going to talk about bread for 20 minutes, but it's like his grandmother's bread. And then I saw a dog. But at this point, we've forgotten that he was at the store because now he's back at the house and it's three days later. Like, I I kid you not. Like, this is how this (laughs) book is written with, with a lot of baseball stuff inside. So, so, yes, Eddie was the guy that they were renting the farm from, and he'd mentioned him a few times, but then again, it became became a much bigger character at the end. They stopped and picked him up on their way back to the farm. He had this moment of, like, I've not shown him the field, I guess I should, which, you know, of all people, he'd probably really appreciate it, but for some reason, I didn't share it with him. And, like, we had the whole story about how they met, and, like, all of this stuff, and then his family. And, like, so the character himself was interesting, and I thought that he had something, some, some cool parts, and I liked, like, I liked the idea of this old guy who didn't get his dream, so made it up, and, like, was like, I'm going to live it and breathe it and talk about it so much it's going to become real. And it's no a one... great foil for Archie Graham. Yes! Like, that was great, That ju- because they were, like, the two sides of the same coin. One almost had the dream and then was like, cool, with not having it because his life moved on, and the other didn't get even that close and, like, could not stop obsessing about it and pretending like he had it. So they were great foils, and we lose that because he's not there in the movie, but honestly, like, I'm fine. Like, I'm fine with him not being in the movie because the movie was right, written so well and it was tight. But he, he was the only part I was like, oh, kind of would have been kind of fun to see that that separate, you know. But then they bury him in the... I mean, it's, it, the whole book, the end just goes off the rails. It's like, oh no, the bank's gonna come. But then they have like, it seems like weeks of just hanging out at the farm, watching baseball it games. It does make Mark's comment really real. Of You just sit there and watch nothing. <laughs> Seriously. And I'm like, okay, I don't want to be with you, like evil bank baron, but like, yeah, man, they're literally just sitting around. They're not doing... Like, doesn't this child need to be in school? I don't even know, man. Like, it just, it just, it just falls apart towards the end. And, and I'm going to say it again at the end because it's part of my wrap up. But I feel like this book would have made a much better short story. And then I looked it up and, oh, look, it was a short story. Yep. 
So Kinsella was really unhappy with how Mark was portrayed in the movie because he wanted to have like the villainy villain with the mustache crawling and whoever. But it was a smart choice. It was not only a smart choice, but it made it so that the villain wasn't evil and yeah. was like he wanted to take care of Annie. Like that was his thing. He, he was wasn't, yeah. He was a brother who was wanting to take care of his sister. He's like trying. you're going to lose everything. And then at the yeah. end, when he sees the thing, that he's like, oh god, don't sell this place. Like he makes that turn. So then there is no bad guy. I'm okay with a movie not having a bad guy. I. I don't mind the bad guy if the bad guy is well written. If you can understand that bad guy's perspective. And it's not because they're evil. It's because they have a different perspective. Right. And he will. And in the book, he was just kind of corporate and evil and blah, blah, blah. And and very one dimensional. And in the movie, he was more fleshed out and he changed. And I just, I just, you know, the, the, the biggest moment of tension in the movie, there were two hugely tense moments, right? One was, is he going to sign the piece of paper? Is he going to sign the piece of paper? And the music is ramping up and the camera's moving in and everybody's holding their breath. And then he says no. And then the next like tension thing comes right after that when like the kid's in danger, right? Mm. Now, I know because I've read a lot of the internet now. A lot of men cry at the end of this movie. A lot of people have father-son things, and they cry when the dad, when he takes off the catcher's mask, and it's his dad, and then they play a game of catch, and blah, blah, blah. That's cool. I cried when freaking Dot Graham came out of the baseball and was like, I'm gonna, like, give up my thing so I can save the little girl. And I was like, oh, that's freaking beautiful. So well, he got his moment, too. He did. He got his moment. He got to stare down the pitcher, well, he got do to the wink, wink at, at him, picture. and then he got yeah. hit by a baseball. Like, Doc's thing was great. I loved his whole thing. And I love that it didn't totally follow his narrative. Like, the pitcher kind of got upset. He's like, he winked at me. Yeah. Hey, kid, don't (laughs) wink. (laughs) And that was just super cute. Yeah, so, Graham was originally, they wanted to get Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. That's such a perfect sort of Jimmy Stewart movie, but Burt Lancaster does it great. He really does. Yeah, he's, he was, he was great in the role, and I loved him. I was like, I'm fine with it not being, but it is a very Jimmy Stewart sort of moment. Definitely. But yeah, I love that part because that's sacrifice. There was a good um, J.D. Salinger line that didn't really make it in the movie because I don't think they needed it because they had the Graham character. But in the book, J.D. Salinger says, if I had my life to live over again, I'd take more chances. I'd want more passion in my life, less fear and more passion and more risk. Even if you fail, you've still taken a risk. I was like, okay, that's cool. I hate that he kind of got browbeat so much in the book. Like, Mm. you know, um, Ray shows up and he's like, how come you don't write? How come you don't do much? We liked your books. You owe it to the public to be creative. Blah, blah, blah. You owe it to the public. Yes. I was like, F you in a major way. Like, that's not cool. You don't say that to an artist. I don't care if the artist has made one thing or zillions of things. You don't know the public crap. You're an artist. You do it for you. So Neil Gaiman has a great little essay about this of you know people artists don't owe you anything if they write one book in a trilogy and don't write the other two you're just going to have to accept it as it is because they don't owe you the rest of the trilogy right and they don't owe you their tweets on twitter and they don't owe you you know personal responses to your fan mail like i you know they don't they just they don't and so is there any other profession where we request that you know do we expect our dentist to do that sort of thing. How come you didn't reply to my tweet? You clean my teeth once a year, damn you. And, like, they're in your mouth. They have a much more intimate connection with you. 
Yeah. No, I liked a lot of what Salinger said in the book about like being a writer. Writers are different. Like they, you know, they write because they write. It has nothing to do with other stuff. And like the idea about, you know, I can see this church that we passed and I could write a whole thing about it. That doesn't necessarily mean I went there or I know anything about that church, but I could use it in my fiction. And I thought that those were really good points. It's just weird that he, that the author of the book picked a real life person yeah, to I do this to be so and like bizarre. that's not Salinger like that's not the real person of Salinger and I find that really tacky I have to say to be like I'm going to fictionalize a real person and put all of these speeches and these you know and this whole personality onto this fictionalized person you know fictional version of a real person so would you have been okay if it was Terrence Mann in the book and he's taking inspiration from Salinger's life of the reclusive author as long as it wasn't like Salinger yeah, well, it could have been a fake person, and it could have been it, it didn't it didn't need to be a real person. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. I just it, to me, um, there is fan fiction with real life people, and it, I just find it creepy every single time. And I get wanting to have that conversation with Salinger because when you're reading his books and you know his history, you kind of want to go, dude, what happened? What what went with this? You know, you would think of the interview that you would have in your head. Keep it in your head because right. it's weird to make that into a fiction thing with him in it yeah it's 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 so weird i just yeah okay so then and then bridging off of that so just so you know because i this is interesting trivia so kinsella the author never actually met salinger of course he created the wholly imagined character blah 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 um but you know to get a feel for salinger he read his whole body of work so of course right you know yeah yeah, that's totally fair right i'll read all your books now i can put you in mine um and then uh, I made sure to make him a nice character so that he couldn't sue me, he said. Well, joke's on him because he still got sued. And because um, Salinger is actually very litigious. He's sued a bunch of people. Salinger contacted Kinsella's publisher via his attorneys to express outrage over having been portrayed in Shoeless Joe, that he would sue should the character J.D. Salinger appear in any other medium should Shoeless Joe be adapted. So. Yeah, so Kinsella just skirted the legal line there. Yeah. And so they changed it to James Earl Jones in the movie and made it Terrence Mann. And, um, yeah. Yeah, I don't blame Salinger for that. I would find it immensely creepy to be written in somebody else's work. But I think that this is really funny. When they were making this movie and they are adapting it, they kind of wanted to keep J.D. Salinger, the producers did, because, you know, that was like a thing. But producers believed that it was not significant to jettison Salinger. They said, no, 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 no. We can keep Salinger. Because they figured only 15% of the potential audience would know who the author was. I don't know how insulting that is to the audience. That's insulting to everyone. That's insulting to Salinger. That's insulting to the audience. That's insulting. I mean, I... I read that too. Seriously? That's... Really? Really? Catching the Rye is a pretty well-known book, y'all. Like, they teach it in high school. Like, I don't... That's just awful. Whatever. Okay. Yikes. Well, and, and so they thought that people would just assume that Salinger was a wholly fictional author. <laughs> That's what they, so, no. So, so there is kind of a, uh, a funny little continuation where Salinger starts introducing himself, and originally he's very nervous about it, and mm-hmm. people were... In the book. In the book. In the book. Yeah. yeah. And then... People just don't recognize him. Or they're like, oh, you're Salinger. Well, that's cool. Or they think he wrote something different or something. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean... That actually happens to a lot of movie stars. I'm sure. Well... Weren't you in that one film in the jungle and they're like, no? It happens to... I mean, think of how many famous Chris 
hunky Chris guys there are. There's Chris Evans, Chris Henvers, Chris Pine, and I'm missing one. I know I'm missing it. Chris Farley? No, 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 no. I mean, currently, there's like at least well, four. I you would call him hunky. Oh, that too. But yeah, there's another one. I don't know. Anyways, um, I'm going to feel really bad now that I can't think of who it is. La, la, la. Okay. Um... Oh, and then, of course, Kinsella denied that Salinger as a writer had any influence on his own writing, which also is a little insulting. Just, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, if you're going to have him in your book as a character right. and just say, oh, yeah. no, he had no influence on me. Oh. Yeah, like, what the heck, man? You're the one obsessing about Again, him. if you take only part one, <laughs> if you make this into a short story and you just leave out the famous person that somebody's going to go kidnap, I mean, that whole thing is dumb. I'm going to go kidnap J.D. Salinger with a gun. I just, oh my God. I There's, there, there's, you talked about the magical realism, like pointing to itself and being like, this is magic. Like, okay, I can actually buy into a world where there's like ghosts and stuff because it's a fictionalized book. And I'm like, that's cool. Random baseball players playing baseball. Like, that's fine. I've accepted the reality of this world. But he's like, I'm going to buy a gun and go kidnap J.D. Salinger. And I was like, yeah, no. I don't know. <laughs> At some point now, you've lost me. You're not well, sympathetic anymore. I can't imagine anymore. Annie going along with that. I Just book Annie, even, who was just there to be supportive. Just, even so, it's like, honey, you're probably going to spend the next 20 years in prison if you do that. I just, it's so, it's just weird. It's, it's just weird. Yeah. Well, and then that kind of gets to the difference of Ray in the book and the movie, too. Like, in the book... I didn't like Ray. Like, I was like, I get it. You love baseball. Like, simmer down. But also, like, I didn't... He was like, he's heard the voice and he knew what it was. He just knew. Like, and the way we knew that he knew was because he would tell someone. Like, it wasn't even in part of the movie. He has to search a little bit. Yeah, well, and and we didn't even get it in his internal monologue. What does it mean? I think it means this. No, like, he just says this. Like, it just... I didn't feel like his internal monologue was great. So during the PTA meeting, he's got... He's his pain written all these different ways because he's trying to figure out this puzzle. Right. And I just, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't buy or enjoy his character or his motivations as much in the book and the movie. And maybe it's just because Kevin Costner is just very likable. You know what I mean? And, but yeah. And, you know, and it starts off, we saw more of him with his daughter in the movie at the beginning. Which was really cute. And you do have that bond. Yes. And he becomes like a real person. It's a little bit more fleshed out. You're sympathetic towards him. And he's talking to the little girl and she's adorable. And so like, they just did a better, I I felt like he was way more sympathetic and I rooted for him in the movie way more than I, than in the book. Because there's some great choices here. Like when he's got her in the tractor mm-hmm. and he's teaching her about baseball and they're having the bonding moment and it's really sweet. And so you do have that connection. Yeah, definitely. Well, and then even at one point, he and Annie are kind of talking about finances and they're frustrated. And she's like, daddy, daddy. And he's like, just a minute, Karen. And you're like, yep, I've been there. I'm a parent, right? <laughs> and then she's like, there's a man in the baseball field. And then it's like, oh, no, you know, it's like a big thing. And so like, you know, hey, don't. Sometimes your kids have important stuff to tell you. Sometimes they're just going to tell you that they remember that in kindergarten they stubbed their toe one day at school and they forgot to tell you and now they're in second grade. So, <laughs> But it's important that you know. Like, I get the frustration. I don't know. He was very flushed out and I, 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 I bought it. I liked it. So Kevin Costner originally wasn't asked to do this film because he just came off of doing Bull Durham. He just did a baseball uh, film and so they didn't want to get him and then he read the script and he wanted to be in it and they're like okay cool yeah and Kevin Costner is actually a pretty good baseball player so when he has to flub early on when playing Shoeless Joe that's uh-huh. kind of hard to do because yeah yeah he actually can play really well yeah I like him I've not seen Bull Durham 
I have seen, um, I saw this one. I, and, and I really enjoyed And this movie was funny. Yeah. Like there were funny moments that I don't remember there being any funny moments in the book. I thought the, the J.D. Salinger one where he gets misremembered or people are like, oh, yeah, that's cool. You're the author. That, that was, I guess it was, it was mildly humorous, I yeah. would say, as, I, as you're reading it. I laughed out loud a couple times in the movie, especially the stuff between Terrence Mann. We did, you know, James Earl Jones, and he's like, well, you know, uh, come with me, come with me. I've got this gun in my pocket. And then he pulls out the crowbar. He pulls out, what are you doing? I'm going to beat your ass. And then I'm going to, you know, like, no, 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 I'm sorry. Let's pretend, you know, like it. The, yeah. So that scene, Kevin Costner was actually really, really sick. And I will say, I'm not a huge, I am not a Kevin Costner fan. I think his ego has gone a little overboard. But you can't tell he was sick in that scene. He can be a legitimately good actor. Um, the character for James Earl Jones was written for James Earl Jones. Yes. They wanted that voice. And James Earl Jones is actually kind of a soft-spoken guy. He's mm-hmm. not big and blustery. So he had to push himself well, and to do some of these things. They wanted the, the visual of Kevin Costner trying to kidnap a very large person. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's really funny. I, I, I liked it. Yeah. No, I, I think Kevin Costner's a fine actor. I don't think I've seen anything in it that he's been in that I used Waterworld. I didn't hate him in Waterworld. We can uh, we can debate that. Different different thing. Yeah. Too bad it's not a book, otherwise I could totally ramp on that one. There you go. Let's see here. I had so, a couple other themes. Did you have any other I okay, so if we're gonna go with you know, being tied to the land, I really love this one scene in the book where he's telling the baseball players, I'm, I'm going to lose a farm. I'm sorry, guys. And they're all like, but we can help. You know, we'll get horses. We all used to farm and do stuff like this. <laughs> From and, the 30s. We know how farming works. And he has this moment of thinking about these baseball players in their baseball uniforms farming his crops, uh-huh. which is kind of funny. It's a, yeah. It, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's not laugh out loud, but right. like, yeah, that's a great image. And so that connection to the land, how this is sort of an American thing, you know, the whole farming bit. It, it, so it's part of that theme. It's, the wind, me, it, once you've fallen in love with the land, the wind never blows as cold. You can't, <laughs> sorry, I rolled my eyes. <laughs> I thought there were some great descriptions in the book and not yeah. all the way through, but there were times where I was like, wow, that was extremely well done. So he talks about misting the grass mm-hmm. in a certain way so that the frost won't kill it mm-hmm. and how there's ice crystals and he spent all night outside doing this and he comes in the next morning he's almost frozen solid See, that reminded me of um laura ingles when they had to go out and put stuff on the potatoes so that the potatoes wouldn't freeze or the corn or something in one of the early laura ingles books they had to save because when the sun would come up it would everything would be frozen and like, yeah. yeah, it was like this whole thing. And I, so yeah, no farming. I get that. That was cool. And those poetic things were, were great. I wish we had more of that. Yeah. So there's some really beautiful descriptions. I think the one part of the book that really dragged for me was when they get into Archie Graham's history and it just felt like it clumped because mm. the rest of it, or at least moving forward, there's something going on. And then all of a sudden we're just going to, I felt go. like every section got slower and slower and slower. And then the last section, well, not the last, because the very end is when J.D. Salinger goes into the corn. And so fine. That, that was like two pages, but the section right before that, when they're all at the house and they're waiting out, winding out the time and they're just, that really dragged, but yeah. No, so I mean, the choices they made for Terrence Mann, I thought were really cute because he's such a serious character and he's all of a sudden very childish and giggling and sort of cute and happy. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a great way to have Terrence Mann enter the corn. 
Yes. Hesitant and not. And then when they played with it, too, like, yeah. they had the one character, one of the baseball players go, I'm melting, I'm melting, as he got sucked into the cart. You know, like, they were self-aware, and I, I thought that was great. It was funny. Yeah. It was good. No, the, the movie, the movie was good. So there's a couple other themes. Um, there's the theme of religion in the book more than the movie, whereas all the characters in the book who are religious are the bad guys. We have Brother Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, actually. There's four brothers of Annie's. And the mother who works religion into every conversation, Annie's mother does. And they're kind of the bad guys with their greed and their, you know, this and that. That's also kind of surprising when you consider you're in love with the heartland and there is a high level of religiosity. And there's a lot of tie-in with religion into the land. So thematically, I just thought that was a little odd. I think it was there so that the foil would be that... That religion with, with God and Christians, that's both it's of hypocritical. Yeah. But the pure religion is baseball because baseball is more church than church, he says. You know, baseball mm-hmm. field is more church than church. And like that religion is where it's at. And it's, and that's the good religion. So that's definitely why I felt like it was there. But they both have ideas about faith, you know, and, and where your faith comes from and then what you get for having your faith. And, I thought the payoff for Ray and his faith in the movie was very clear. He got to play catch with his dad. He made peace with his dad. I didn't really... He, in the book, it was very built up. He, he talked to the uh, to Shoeless Joe, you know, about this catcher that I know. Like, maybe there's this catcher you could have. Like, he wants his dad to be part of it. The ghost of his dad. And then his dad's there for a while, but he's just too nervous to go talk to him. And then finally, he and his brother go up and they're like... You catch a good game. And the guy's like, yeah. And then that's kind of it. Like, it didn't, it was anticlimactic. It didn't feel like that was the payoff. So, again, very smart choices in the film. Yes. And originally, there was a last line that they put in because audiences were really unhappy that he didn't say, hi, I'm your son. So, he has that one line of, you know, you want to, you know, pitch a game, dad? And just that was enough for audiences. Where it the was the word of- dad was looped. Yeah. The, the rest of it was there, but they went back and they re-looped the word yeah, dad. Yeah, audiences were not happy with the original. They felt like, you got all this way. Yeah, they wanted to make sure that everybody knew. Which, okay, again, I read the If You Build It, a book about father's faith and field of dreams by Dwyer Brown, and he talked about that, looping that last word and stuff. And I learned a lot about the movie, the making of the movie, by reading this book. And I also... This book was about a, a man who had a relationship with his father and a profound relationship with baseball and a profound relationship with the land as a farmer. And his family was a farm, you know, farming family. This book, this memoir, I feel like did what the Shoeless Joe book was trying to do, mm. but better actually. Yeah. So I, and it's short, it's, it's pretty short. It's, it's got some, I mean, it's got pictures, <laughs> you know, it's a memoir, but like, you know, there's big font and big space. Like, I highly recommend for your supplemental reading fine this um, this memoir about this actor who then like this was basically his big role a lost five minutes of a of a Kevin Costner film right and he didn't really go on to do much and he's okay with that like which is a nice callback yes to the characters. exactly it's like but I'm I'm fine like I love my life I have a family like this is important to me and there's more important things than being this huge star like I, I've seen that now and I realize that's not exactly the dream I wanted and this is what I have and what I want so so as a side note of that uh, one of the baseball coaches that they hired to help train the actors and everyone to make sure that they do know how to play he was basically Archie Graham he was in the pros he had like he was there he broke his back and could never play oh wow 
And so he spent the rest of his life coaching and doing all this other ancillary stuff. And he's still very much part of the game. But he was a soft-spoken, sort of humble guy. And he was like, even the director was like, oh, man, so you're Archie Graham. And the guy's like, yeah, I kind of am. Well, and then Archibald Moonlight Graham is an actual baseball player. Yeah. There was a character with that name who only had played the one game. And so stuff too. he is, from what I researched, he was a lot of the inspiration for making the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. So he was the kind of the first character that started the story. Yeah. Um, they made a couple changes. So the real Moonlight Graham died earlier, but they wanted to have the Nixon poster and certain posters in the background for the film. So they postdated it a little bit. Um, his time in the leagues was earlier than what they have in the movie. All the timing was different yeah. too, because yeah. So some of the dates are a little bit different. In the bar, talking to all these different people about Moonlight Graham and they're giving stories. Those were all stories about the actual Moonlight Graham. Yeah, the real man in the town. Yeah. So that's a cool thing if you're watching the film. That's very eerie and neat. I thought it was just really fascinating to find out all the problems that they had trying to film this. So the filming schedule is based on how high the corn was. And they were having one of the worst droughts they had in decades so they had Japanese corn that was shipped in just in case. They had, and they, they made some out of silk. They had a whole thing. They, they had him walking on things. They dug a trench so that yeah. he could walk through other. Then he was on a platform. So right. And then they overgrew it and it became too tall. So then they had to. Yeah. And they talk about a lot of that again in this memoir yeah. that I know is not the assigned And reading, a lot of the but... local farmers were really upset because their crops are suffering. But that cornfield costs like $25,000. Yeah. You know, it's way. It's worth like three times more than the corn was. To get all the water in to make that corn grow. Yeah. And towards the end, the baseball diamond, it's just painted. Is They had a painter out every single day. They were basically playing on dead sod. Because it was just, there was no growing anything that year. Yeah. So a lot of the scenes, you see actors in wool coats and leather jackets, and they're suffering in the heat. So that one scene where he goes to man for the first time, there was a crew out all night to dig a hole in the building, you know, to build a hole just so they could have some cool air piped in because he was sick and having to wear a leather jacket in this stifling heat and nobody could work. People were passing out. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it was a really brutal film to, to film. Well, it looks great. <laughs> it does. Was it worth your time to read the book and watch the movie? I would say I really wish this book had been a short story or that I loved baseball. Cause I feel like either way, I probably would have enjoyed it more. Mm. Honestly, I feel like if, and I was trying to think of something, if there was a book about something that I feel as strongly about as a lot of people, including this author felt feel about baseball. And I can't really think of something, but if there was, I could see that I could see you liking to live in a world where the thing that you love almost more than anything else is treated as the thing that everybody should love more than anything else. So I can appreciate that. But I, I felt like the book had some plot issues. I bu- felt like the book had some pacing issues. I felt like the book had some character issues. And I, it's very poetic in some ways, but it's oversaturated. And so it kind of loses its specialness and its beauty when it's just page after page after page about baseball and the grass. And, I wouldn't and say like, a short story, but a novella. There you go. Yeah. But like, you know, little things like somebody hands him a piece of paper, she cradles it and hands it to me, you know, as tenderly as a newborn child, you know, that my field I took care of, like I did my own child. And I was like, please no. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's a field. Um, yeah. And uh, so yeah, 
but fine. It it I pounded through it pretty fast um, because I was desperate to finish it. <laughs> um, <laughs> partly from a time constraint, but also because I was just not enjoying it super much. So I wanted to get through it. I loved the movie. I watched it with my family. It was great. It was way better than I thought it was going to be. So you think the movie held up really well? Definitely. Okay. Definitely. And I would say the movie is totally worth your time because it's it's fast. It's easy. It's it's funny. It's well acted. I think it tells a good story. It leaves you with a happy feeling. So yeah, I would say I, I definitely enjoyed this film. So the book was better than I expected. Again, because I was surprised by the level of descriptive beauty and I didn't expect to get that from the book. So that was surprising. Although, yeah, to me, it was clunky. And this is why I argue to people, the movies are sometimes much better than the book. They made smart decisions in this. You know, they, they took something that was not entirely perfect, but this is what happens when you have a whole group of people going, okay, that's an interesting idea. Um, we're going to shelf that and go with this idea. And, and when you have uh, collaborations, sometimes that comes out to something a lot better. So the book, I would say, is worth your while. The movie doesn't totally hold up to me because it's 30 years old. So it hit the 30th anniversary in April. And so the technology just, it it looks like, okay, yeah, that's a painted scene. You know, it doesn't look quite as great. But story-wise, oh, huh. yeah, story-wise, I thought it was still really well done. Yeah, no, it totally, I felt like it, it it aged very well because it wasn't relying on outdated technology. Really, I mean, like, of course, nowadays we would have cell phones instead of the pay phone and blah, blah, blah. And like, there would be the internet as opposed, we were watching it when he goes to the library. He's looking stuff up on Microfish. My daughter's like, what's that? I was like, that's how we look stuff up before the internet, you know? But like, I, I thought it, it, it held up quite well. The story, definitely, it's the story. The yeah. trappings are, you know, they come and go, but the story holds up. Yeah, and that's I, exactly how to look at it. It's not about baseball. It's about baseball as a metaphor for the other things that we hold dear in life. Right, or the or just the backdrop for family struggles yeah. and stuff. I will say one thing, and I, this might be my last thing, so do you have an... I have one more. Um, the, the One of the great things about this is that it wasn't a straightforward relationship between Ray and his dad. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, oh, my father played baseball with me and it was great and I have all these wonderful memories. It was a conflicted relationship. And that's one of the things I, I liked about it is it wasn't this simple, nostalgic, well, my father and I always got along. And it was more about recapturing sort of that relationship, which you sometimes have to do as you grow up. You know, you think about the mistakes your parents made and then you become a parent. You go, oh, God, now I understand what they were going through. So sometimes it's growing up that you can become closer to your parent because you understand their experiences more. Mm -hmm. So I like that their relationship had kind of this ebb and flow and this conflict within it. Fair enough. Okay. Let's see here. I have this last little bit of trivia, which I just thought was really, really great. Universal Studios executive Tom Pollack called the director, Phil, into his office, informed him the title of the film, Shoeless Joe, was going to be changed to Field of Dreams. This was the last straw. Phil was mad. Field of Dreams, he thought. It sounded like the name of a room deodorizer. Phil argued against the change. Pollock was firm. He explained the test audiences had been confused by the title, thinking it was a movie about a homeless person. It would have to be changed. Phil dreaded calling the novel's author, Kinsella, to tell him about the bad news. Finally, with the release of the film only months away, he called Kinsella and apologized about the new title. He explained that he'd fought for the shoeless Joe, but the Universal was adamant about changing it. Kinsella said, it's okay. Shoeless Joe wasn't my title anyway. The book publisher chose it when they released the book. Phil, who'd worked intimately with the book for six years, was shocked. What was your title? He asked. My original title? 
dream field. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And it should have been titled dream field or field of if, if shoeless, because it wasn't really about shoeless Joe. It just wasn't. No, it really wasn't. And yeah. Okay. I'm that little section I just read is from that memoir that I keep quoting. And I will definitely put a link to that in, in the show notes, which are on our blog, as well as um, all the other information about our books. And um, there you go. So that was my final thought. And it was okay. cool. Um, happy baseball season. I guess it's baseball right now, right? It's yes. summer. Yeah, it's yeah. baseball season. Um, and happy 30 years to Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams. Very cool.